What's up? Thanks for tuning in to another edition of the Rippy Rights Podcast. Today we have Reldon Rodenberg on to talk storylines surrounding quarterback. Ole Miss's week one game against Mercer. Game week is here, so we checked in with Weldon about expectations for the team this season. We recorded on Monday night, so it was before both quarterbacks became available to the media on Tuesday and made some mild headlines, uh, to say the least there. So this was before that discussion, but I think everything surrounding quarterback pretty much remains the same and still holds true today. So buckle up. I think you'll enjoy it. Before we get to Weldon, though, I wanted to take a quick break to remind you. This podcast is brought to you by Rent the Sip Oxford. Rent the Sip Oxford's Turnberry unit is located right off Old Taylor Road, less than a mile from the Ole Miss campus. It will sleep eight comfortably. It is gated. It includes amenities such as a a pool, a sauna, tennis courts. It is gated. It will sleep eight comfortably. It is a perfect spot for a weekend getaway in Oxford or maybe just a couple nights passing through in the middle of the week, whatever the case may be. Hotels can be expensive, particularly on big weekends. It's hard to find a place to stay. Rent the Sip Oxford has you covered. I know some of you out there want to come to the Mercer game. Yes, it'll be hot, but it's the season opener. And maybe you're looking for a place to stay. This unit is still available for Mercer weekend. Go online to rentthesipoxford.com and book it today. If you use the promo code RIPPY RIPPYRITES, R-I-P-P-E-E, RIPPYRITES, R-I-T-E-S, you and you get a 100 bucks off any two nights day. Take advantage of this deal. It is a great place to stay. It is walking distance from the Ole Miss campus, walking distance to the Grove, walking distance to Vaught Hemingway, and it is available for the first home game as well as Vandy and ULM. Check them out, rentthesipoxford.com. Don't miss out on this. Book your stay today. That is rentthesipoxford.com. This podcast is also brought to you by Seaspire. It's time to upgrade your home internet to the best service on the market with Seaspire Fiber. The past few years have shown us how important it is to have reliable inter- home internet connection for you and your family. That's why Seaspire Home provides the most reliable internet service with 99.99% uptime. Seaspire also prides themselves with the best customer service in the industry. Their customer service is award-winning, local service based out of the Southeast with industry low call wait time. Seaspire provides one gigabit and 300 megabit internet packages to homes across Mississippi, Birmingham, and South Alabama regions. Seaspire is proud to announce the release of their brand new two gigabit and eight gigabit internet plans. Save yourself the hassle by not waiting for your internet connection to drop with the other guys. Go online to cspire.com today and use promo code RIPPY, R-I-P-P-E-E for one month of free service. You hear that? If you just for listing this podcast, you get one month of free service and the best internet on the market. Check it out today. Ceasefire customer inspired. All right, here's Weldon Rodenberg. All right, we now welcome on Rippy Wright's football correspondent, former Ole Miss recruiting staffer Weldon Rodenberg. It is game week. This is a new year for us. Come with uh, new additions. I got a fancy new microphone I'm trying not to talk into too loud. Uh, toying with a webcam idea, so the copious amount of cigarettes and blunts that Weldon smokes during the show just have to be by the wayside if we had a video. But hey, we're teasing it for the folks that's coming. How you doing, dude? It is uh, finally here. Uh, I'm doing good. And, you know, today would not be a great webcam day because I just got back from a trip and my AC up here is broken and I'm doing this in my boxers and a shirt because it is about 85 degrees upstairs. Um, but I'm willing to sacrifice because I simply cannot do this show with my wife looking at me sitting in the bed and like talking for two hours. I would rather fight through a little bit of heat than do that. So we're doing good besides that. We already ruin her Sundays during football season enough. We can't just have it in the room with her. Your wife's a trooper and a saint for dealing with this already. So we just can't we can't have her in the room in the room for all of it. She don't want to hear us talk for an hour, yeah. an hour and a half each week. 
It's a um, mutual no. It's <laughs> neither of us want to be in the same room while we do this. So that at least that works out that way. <laughs> so we're here at game week. We recorded this on a Monday evening, a few hours after Lane Kiffin's weekly presser, kind of the first game week Monday press conference. Really much of the same. Not a ton has changed since the last time we did a podcast, but they're entering game week. They exit out of camp, and it's kind of real now, right? They'll play a game on Saturday that counts, and then it'll be – off to the races. There are a couple of different storylines from Lane Kiffin's Monday presser that we'll dive into. And I guess the one that everybody's probably most concerned with, I say that it's been a little bit of mum in terms of it driving conversation is just the fact that Kiffin said they're not ready to decide who the quarterback is yet. I think any sort of Intel with anyone connected with the program would tell you the opposite. This seems to be Jackson darts job. And it's just kind of Kiffin being Kiffin, not necessarily naming a quarterback yet. Similar to like last year, when you got two games in, you knew it was probably Jackson dart and he'd be like, you know, both guys will play all the way into like the fourth game of the season. I don't begrudge him for it, but it just seems like it's kind of Kiffin being Kiffin. Would you be stunned if it was anyone else other than Jackson dart walking out at quarterback on Saturday for the first series? I would be absolutely shocked. I mean, that that would be – well, you know what? You say that, but Kiffin being Kiffin, he could throw Sanders out there for, like, you know, one play. A play. Sort of series, you know, have him run like a QB draw just to, just to fuck with everybody, and I would not be surprised in the least bit. Uh, but, no, I think everyone knows this is Jackson Dart's team. Kiffin, you know, coaches these days, like, they go in almost polar opposites. You either got coaches who tell you everything – or coaches that tell you nothing, and Co- and Kiffin has absolutely been on the I will tell you nothing, even if it's unimportant, I will not let you know about it um, side of things. So, no, this is Jackson Dart's team. I mean, Jackson tweeted a little emoji like I think an hour after the press conference, which, I mean, I don't even know what to say about it because I have actually no idea what it means. But I think, I think even he knows like this is just a little silly. At this point, um, and I don't necessarily even disagree with him, um, but no, it's got to be Jackson's team at this point. I think he knows what the deal is privately. I have pretty, pretty decent feeling that that's probably the case, but you're exactly right. And like, I, again, it's coach's prerogative. I don't work as a head football coach. So like, I'm not going to be one to big, well, just tell us, what does it matter? Clearly they think it matters for some sort of reason. So cool. That's on them. Like their prerogative, like I mentioned earlier, it has cracked me up. I saw a tweet earlier today as I was scrolling through some social media on my lunch break where uh, Tom Allen, former Ole Miss coach, seemed like an all-around great guy. In Indiana, he got asked about who the starting kicker was, and he said, yeah, we have a starter. We won't disclose that publicly. So we have coaches that are saying, uh, not giving you the starting kicker because, you know, that would give the other team somehow an unfair advantage. It just cracks me up. Like, if if you ask Kippen who the starting kicker was, he might actually give you that type of answer, even though everyone knows it is Caden Clean Pete Costa. But it's just – it cracks me up that it's just like, yeah, we know who the starter is, but uh, we're not going to divulge that publicly. It's like, no, we did a kicker. What does that matter? I mean, it's a 25% chance that Kiffin would say that it was Ruiz or whoever the kicker was last year. He'd be like, yeah, yeah, he's no longer here. <laughs> I, I can't even remember the guy's name last year. He was awesome. but uh, Jonathan Ruiz. I mean, if you talk about Kiffin recruiting jobs, the fact that he just regularly found kickers that nail 50 yarders and has not had a single issue at kicker the entire time he's been here, that's like an underrated pat on the back he should get. Absolutely, which is ironic because like the last play of his NFL career was uh, Janikowski going out there for like a 72-yard field goal. So I think he's like really turned a page in his special teams career. Um, and then the funny part is, you know, I think pretty sure Indiana is starting off the season hot with the Ohio State Buckeyes on the road. So I'm sure the 
the starting kicker is going to make a big difference in that one. Yeah, no kidding. And so with like the dark thing, I feel like it confirms probably our initial initial suspicions. I feel like there was times throughout spring where like, oh, could this become different? And then we got a little more intel on what uh, Spencer Sanders was and was not doing in spring because he was still dealing with the ailing shoulder. But like something I've written that I'll probably be out by the time this podcast drops on a Tuesday is just the fact that it seems more and more now by the day that what everyone's or seemingly mostly the consensus opinion that Sanders was brought in to push start and make Dart the best version of himself instead of him entering an offseason where it was just assumed he'd be the starter to kind of push him and really not even quote win the job, but just make sure that he doesn't slip and that, hey, if he does, there's a guy behind him who's fully capable that's played a lot of football. To me, it just seems more and more evident that he was brought here to bring Jackson Dart to the best version of himself and really just keep the pressure on a young quarterback who's by far, you would hope so if you're an Ole Miss fan, not a finished product at quarterback and really just keep the pressure on him and keep him sharp and just kind of make sure he needs to know that he needs to earn everything, which is totally fair. Just the way it went down with the that and then bringing in the presumed quarterback of the future and Walker Howard made the dynamic more interesting. But as the dust kind of settles now, that seems more and more why Spencer Sanders came to Ole Miss versus let's let these guys battle it out in camp and see who the best man wins. I mean, absolutely. I mean, we've been talking on this podcast since the season ended and since the portal, you know, that December portal closed, like why Spencer Sanders is on this team. And we've had, you know, we've gone in so many different directions. And now that we've got at least some sort of hindsight, though we technically don't have the full final answer, it does seem to be exactly what you said, that they brought him in to be a more than serviceable backup and to push Jackson Dart into the player that I believe that Kiffin and his staff thought he was when they got him from USC and still think he can be. Um, I mean, everything coming out of camp has been incredibly positive for Jackson. And since we've had this staff and we've had this podcast, we've, you know, taken the step of taking everything they say at face value, which I think has been probably the right thing to do with everything except for maybe injuries. Um, So I, I think it's worked out that way. I don't know if it was, you know, the most conventional way to go about a quarterback competition or roster building, you know, bringing in two guys to potentially fight for a backup with a incumbent starter who may or may not be the guy. It's been weird for months. Um, but now that we finally got here, they've gone through camp, you know, he's been injured out, you know, whatever. Howard's been the constant you bring in the 17 year old. You just basically improved your room. And, you know, Jackson was not exactly fully healthy last year. So there's some positives to just having a guy there to push you. And then in emergency situations, some trust in a guy as a backup. Um, Why that you still don't have to say that Jackson is the starting quarterback week one. That one I don't have an answer for. Uh, I don't know why. It's not like Spencer has some sort of leverage over the situation where you could leave or be unhappy. It's like, he's here. This is it for him. So, you know, life kind of goes on, but uh, it, it's been very, very interesting. You know, they, they don't do things all the way normal there at Ole Miss these days. So it's not overly surprising, uh, but it's honestly kind of nice to almost not have to talk about it anymore. <laughs> One of the things I'd written about too was, the fact that in this transfer portal era, it seems like when a guy goes to a second school, you think, oh, automatically, I mean, technically, you're older, he would definitely be more veteran. And I don't know, it just feels like transfers are viewed as, hey, they brought this guy in there to do this, and there's not really a ton of room for development. But like in a case like Jackson Dart, that's not really the case at all. 
in in some sense, because if you think about it, Jackson Dart's entering his third year of college football. He had a couple of starts at USC after he was thrown into a very odd situation, which we've talked about ad nauseum. But I guess my overarching point in all of this is like Jackson Dart really has one full season of college football under his belt. And then whatever you want to classify USC as, as an interim staff, guy gets hurt. He kind of comes in then gets forced out because of the Caleb Williams thing. I guess my point is, is like Jackson Dart's like survived a lot. He's been in the mix a lot. His name's been thrown around a lot, but he's still, I mean, just turned 20 years old and is kind of at that 2021 Matt Corral stage. If you want to compare it to one, even though he's technically, I guess would be at least a year younger that he probably still has room for growth. And I'm just curious I know you were working predominantly before the transfer portal and the one-time free transfer became like a massive thing, but did you ever experience any of that at all where a transfer kid would come in and it's like, all right, everyone's expecting him to be like whatever his finished product version of himself is. But what people on the outside don't realize is even if it's a younger transfer, they still have room to develop on, on top of getting acclimated to a new place. Well, yeah, I mean, you used to have grad transfers all the time that would come in. And obviously you still had guys that transferred that would sit out and come in. And, you know, whether it was, you know, just a completely new environment or a step up in competition, there was always some sort of period of growth and kind of development that was needed. I think that a certain portion of recruiting that's not the same anymore, that was really a good kind of like, you know, metaphor for this would be what JUCO recruiting used to be. Yeah where you would bring a JUCO guy in and maybe he was like a one-year JUCO guy and you expect him, you know, because when you sign JUCO guys, you're expecting them to start. You know, that that's the goal. They've been in college football for a year. Of course, it's a different competition level, but that was the mindset because you didn't want to waste a scholarship on a guy that only had two years if he couldn't play. But it didn't always work out the first year for those guys. And that's not even – just an old Miss specific thing. That's anywhere. I mean, Montez Sweat wasn't at Mississippi State, like wasn't the guy immediately. And then he had that next year and he was like, oh shit, this guy's like a first round, second round draft pick. Like it does take time. And I think you're seeing a pretty similar scenario with Dart. Obviously, you know, the Pac-12 is different than Old Miss, but we can't really put too much on like his experience at USC. That's a pretty unique situation with what happened with him. So yeah, it's not overly surprising to see a guy like take some time to develop you know we see guys come into the league like Bryce Young and all these like really young quarterbacks that start immediately even Spencer Rattler at Oklahoma it's technically kind of part of the league I mean Quinn Ewers at Ohio State and now Texas I mean yeah. you know he has all the talent in the world but he really hasn't fully put it together yet um, not everybody's the same and it's a different time period like we said you know we take things at face value at least you know, mostly on this podcast and what they've been saying about Jackson is that he's been like a really different guy. He's really improved and we have no reason not to believe them, of course, until the game starts. So it's not unusual in any way for it to take some time for kids. Something you said there at the beginning made me think of another question. I probably should have prepped you for this, but as we do often, I just throw something at you and see how you can react to it. The, what, the Juco thing back in the day, I say back in the day, way long before, like three years ago. I know that was a different world ago. The one-year versus two-year JUCO kid, what's that kind of like? Like, as a kid starts out at JUCO and he blows up in year one, what is kind of the thought process behind, can we try to get this kid after a year or just let him go through JUCO a year again? Like, what is that actually like, one-year, two-year JUCO, guys? The process for that, I don't know if it's changed, but back in the day was an incredibly complicated one. Um, a lot of it had to deal with academics on whether they were actually going to be eligible to 
get out of a JUCO in one semester or one year, um, or if it was going to have to be, no, they're going to have to be there for two years. Um, and a lot of it depended on like the player themselves. I mean, a lot of these kids that go to JUCO, they're not necessarily kids that are going to JUCO because they simply didn't have the grades to play SEC football. Sometimes it was their only offer. Like they were an underdeveloped kid and like they have to go there for two years. And then like eventually they develop into a player after two years at JUCO. And then it's like, okay, this is now a guy. So it's not always like the school's decision. Sometimes it's the player just needing an extra year of college football in a weight room to develop in a program like that compared to, you know, an old Miss or, you know, even like a lesser school, like a Southern Miss or um, Tulane or something like that. Um, but then there was, of course, those guys, I mean, like Javon Kinlaw, that ended up at South Carolina. He was basically placed at EMCC and was like, I'm here for a year until I can get back to South Carolina. Right. Mississippi State used to do that at Colin all the time. I mean, Malik Heath was another one of those guys, like, I'm going to be here for one season at Colin and I'll be back at Mississippi State. Ole Miss does the same a lot of times with either Jones or East Mississippi. It just depends. Uh, but it's it was never a, you know, complication for the player to get through JUCO. It was more of a choice of, like, are we actually going to recruit this kid? Is he even ready? Um, and a lot of times it was just, you know, kind of hit by hit, player by player situation. And the last thing on this sidebar that I just completely made up, what about the prep school aspect? So Caden Priestcorden comes to mind because it's some, I've had him on the podcast. I'm writing something on him that hopefully will come out in the next week or so. He went, like he didn't have very, he wanted to play FBS football, didn't have any offers. He was a high school quarterback. He goes to a military prep academy in Virginia. I forget, I think it's like Fork Union. I forget what it's called. And he just had a year and he played quarterback, played seven games, was actually planning to play basketball there too, broke his foot. And then that was just kind of it. Like, you don't have the second year of that. But what was fascinating to me is I was asking him all these dumb questions that really not, I feel like a lot of people have any idea about. But, like, who do you play? Like, what's the competition? How did y'all, like, did y'all do, did you do a ton of prep academy recruiting? Like, what, how do you evaluate that at all? Because there's no telling what the competition is. There's literally only one year. When you guys were looking at a potential option at a prep school kid, what was that like at all? Did you deal with that at all? Off the top of my head, I really cannot remember ever recruiting a prep school kid. Okay, um, Those things are like, they're not new, but they're new for certain kids. I think like basketball is more of a prep school kind of situation. Yeah, those, for sure. Those ages are all kind of weird the way they can reclassify and stuff. And new or not, it's still few and far between in terms 100%. of- hundred percent. It's like a one in a million thing. I will say that we did- recruit some players from uh from georgia military okay uh, i think one of the guys that i remember off the top of my head was byron young not the alabama byron young i was about to say damn the tennessee ed rusher byron young who ended up getting drafted by the rams and is in the league now who was like a pretty sought after recruit but i don't remember if georgia military was a juco or a prep school off the top of my head um, but it was kind of like a weird deal. Like they played weird teams. They didn't play Mississippi Juco. So I actually do think that was a prep school. Uh, I think they had like an O-lineman one year. And then I definitely remember Byron Young. He was a freak coming out of there. But very, very rare, at least in my you know time doing that, to hear of a kid coming out of one of those schools. Because, I mean, like I said, I couldn't even name one off the top of my head. Uh, right. You named the preschool one. I don't even know these. And like Priestcorn wasn't a recruit coming out of there. He literally got like a walk-on spot as a favor to the point where they sent him home for a second because they didn't have a spot for him as a walk-on, then told him to like come back a couple weeks in the season. His story's pretty crazy in that sense. Kind of getting back to the 
the press conference aspect of it is I thought it was a very, uh, you know, a to B to C Lane Kiffin press conference. I'd put it as an A minus just because it, it's a couple of things made me laugh. He got asked about the rule changes. So we have week zero of college football under our belt to watch Notre Dame beat the hell out of Navy, a couple other games. And one of the things that clearly became a topic of conversation was the clock stoppages. And Kiffin threw out some stat about how like 1.6 more possessions last year than maybe compared to week zero. I don't know exactly what the time frame was, but clearly as an offensive head coach, he was not a fan of it and cutting down on one possessions. He talked about how college football is entertaining. Like who is this rule actually for other than just people online who complain? This is my words, not his about how long the games take. What did you think of whatever football you consumed week one, uh, week zero? I know you're out of town, but like, what did you think of the whole non-clock stoppage thing? For myself, I did watch a, pretty much all the first quarter of Notre Dame Navy, and I did think to myself, granted, one school is running the triple option, but wow, that quarter went by fast, and that game time was cut down a bit. Kiffin did not seem to be a fan of it being an offensive guy, but just what did you think of the rule change and the tiny, tiny sample size we have of it in week zero? Yeah, I watched uh, a good bit of Notre Dame Navy before we were getting ready for the wedding. Um, we all, of course, went in on Navy plus 21 and had a nice loss to celebrate with. Um, I don't really felt like I noticed the timing very much in that game. Um, of course, I wasn't like intently paying attention, but I was, you know, we were watching it for sure. Uh, I think it's a pretty tough, you know, kind of, precedent to set for that game because of course Navy's running triple options so the game's going quicker no matter what um but I do think the rule change will be interesting to see on how teams you know coach their players differently whether you see teams slow down like just a little bit so that they can keep uh the majority of possessions on their end because I mean time of possession despite you know how the way Ole Miss does it is still an incredibly important part of football um, I can understand why he's frustrated. I mean, it's definitely a benefit to the defense where you're playing less plays and whatnot. Um, I mean, I was listening to Chase this morning, and I completely agree with his you know, thoughts on it, where it's like we're cutting down the actual game, not the actual time. Like, right. we're just less plays and more commercials, which I think is really silly. Um, and his analogy or kind of, you know, his you know, thought towards baseball and what football is doing, like, they are completely different. Uh, I think it'll be a little bit more interesting to see it on Saturday when there's a lot of games. I bet we'll get a lot of different data points on how things went for the way certain teams play offense. Um, I, I don't think it was really necessary. College football is just long. It's way too long. But the only way to cut it down would be to cut down on the TV timeouts and commercials and you know make even more rule changes. And I don't think college football is the same game as the NFL. I don't think they had the same communications, whether it was with the linebacker or the quarterback calling the plays. It's just they don't have enough of it. So I don't know if this was all necessary, but I'm not sure that I actually noticed it all that much. Like you mentioned, the issue with the time of game and all of that really has less to do with the actual time it takes to play the football game and more so the time we spend standing around after a TV timeout for the guy with the red hat to get off the field because the TV's coming back. You don't really see that in the NFL very much at all. And like on the, the, if Kiffin had had a rant today, if he had just said, I'm going to talk about what I want to talk about as pertains to rule changes, questions aside, is clearly the fact that the, uh, it's seemingly these rule changes have been defensive minded. He went on some, a little bit of a tangent about how, 
now when apparently the pass interference rules changed, which completely flew over my head, but he was like, now the kid can run into you without turning his head and it's not a penalty. And so you had an offensive guy just basically being like, well, the defense got all the rule changes this year. And it's like, it's hard for me to feel bad for him in that sense, because every rule change at every level of football for the last decade or so has been offensive centric. It just made yeah. me laugh because he was like, you know, they don't really consult a lot of us on that, like most things. So it was an offensive guy looking at two seemingly defensive minded rule change from less possessions to the pass interference thing being like, uh, I don't like this. If I want to make my stance clear, it kind of made me laugh. The turn the head thing is interesting in terms of the uh, defensive pass interference, but clearly Kiffin not a fan of either, which made me laugh a little bit. Well, I mean, I can almost tell you exactly what happened here is every year during fall camp, the uh, officials and the NCAA, they send over all the new rules for the year so that the coaches can uh, have a team meeting with all the coaches and all the players to discuss, hey, this is what's going to happen this year. This is how this rule works. You show a few clips to like explain it to you. And you, I mean, it's like an hour meeting. It's like a, hey, like we have to do this this way. And I'm sure this one with the new clock was an even longer meeting. <laughs> I can just imagine them showing the clips of the guys playing, you know, pass interference and having to explain to receivers and quarterbacks that like, hey, this is not a penalty anymore. And then all the coaches being like, well, this is really fucking stupid. Like, yeah, like, what do you mean this is not a penalty? Like, make it make sense. Don't explain to me the rule. Make Tell me how this makes common sense. Exactly. So having to interpret it by yourself as a staff with just a few clips and kind of like, you know, the legal jargon they send out that looks like more like a lawsuit than actual rules was probably incredibly frustrating for them. So I, I can imagine how that meeting went and going over this and all that stuff. And, you know, I'm sure he dove into some analytics that someone handed him and was like, okay, this does not benefit me, not cool with it. And then that's where the rant forms. Uh, it's a pretty simple scientific process there. We'll get back to Weldon in just a second, but I wanted to take a quick break to remind you podcast is now brought to you by twisted tea are you ready to elevate your college football game day experience check out twisted tea your go-to game day beverage for college football fans twisted tea is unlike any other hard beverage you've had before it's made with real brewed tea packs a flavorful punch with five percent alcohol and no carbonation delivering the perfect balance of taste and refreshment that go down goes down smooth for every game day occasion no need to settle for the usual. Twisted tea turns up on any occasion. Hell yeah, I added that part. Especially when you're cheering for your favorite team. Whether you're tailgating in the stadium parking lot, watching at a bar, or hosting friends at home, Twisted Tea is there to elevate the game day experience. It perfectly complements your love for college football and your passion for creating unforgettable moments. So let's toast to unforgettable game day experiences. Twisted Tea, a drink that feels fun and celebrates your love for college football. Keep it twisted. Podcast is also brought to you by Skybox Sports Picks. Who is Skybox Sports Picks? Well, glad you asked. They're the world's best gambling handicapping website. The inventors of the Skybox Matrix Interval, an advanced modeling mechanism that has helped propel Skybox to the top of the sports handicapping industry. After a summer hiatus, Skybox is back. They're ready to full go for football season. They're already posting analysis on the site. To celebrate the return of football season, if you use the promo code FOOTBALL23, you get 50% off any package now through the first kick of the NFL that Thursday night game coming up in two weeks and also if you use promo code Rippy R-I-P-P-E-E -E, you get 20% off any purchase just go online to skyboxsportspicks.com find a picks package and try it for a day a week a month I recommend going with the year-long all-access pass college football pro football whatever the case may be pick your package they'll send your picks in a nice color-coded spreadsheet each week and boom you're more equipped to profit than you were before signing up for skybox Make your football season a profitable one this year. Don't lose money based off your own liens. Go with the professionals, skyboxsportspicks.com. 
podcast is also brought to you by LB's University Avenue there in Oxford. Go see Greg. If you're a Rippy Rights subscriber, it's rippyrights.subtech.com. You get a free newsletter from me and discounted meats. Right now, it's three six-ounce bacon-wrapped fillets for 20 bucks. That's about a $40 valuation you're getting for 20 bucks. It's prime grilling season. Summer's winding down. Go take advantage of that now. Then go find all your own favorites at LB's. It's the best butcher shop in the world. All kinds of delicious cuts of sausages, fresh seafood, different cuts of meat. I like the tri-tips. The filet burgers are always a favorite. Go find your own favorites at the best butcher shop in the world, LB's University Avenue there in Oxford. All right, back to Weldon Rodenberg. I'd love to see the camera in the room on that if there was one. Probably not, but just Kiffin looking like juice ran away and then Golding being like, oh, yeah, this is this is good stuff. So it's just, <laughs> the whole thing, like the juxtaposition of it cracks me up. One of the other things that I thought was a theme from today's press conference and something that we uh, – that we've heard about a little bit throughout the latter portion of fall camp is, you know, we've talked about, we're not going to go into the whole roster building thing again, but the amount of transfers and the amount of new faces and, you know, almost half the scholarship roster, if you're still capping it at the whole old 85 piece of it being new faces, this, I don't think they're doing this on purpose because it didn't happen last year. Kevin talked about what a struggle building chemistry was and just all the new players trying to get used to stuff like that and just used to game day routine. They've talked very highly of the chemistry this team has and the game readiness this team has, despite the new faces, in a way that I think is, one, genuine, and two, starkly different than they did a year ago, which I think that is good news for Ole Miss fans. Because Kiffin, for better or for worse, will tell you what he thinks, whether it's indirectly or directly. And it does seem that he genuinely believes that this team has better chemistry better depth and appears more game ready than they were this time a year ago, which is fascinating to me because I feel like I know less about this team going into the year than I did last year. And I don't know if there's really merit for that, but what did you think of that? Because they clearly feel a lot more confident going into week one than they did a year ago with a lot of new faces once again. Yeah. I mean, like we said earlier, you, you take what he says at face value for anything, when, especially when it comes to roster management and culture, uh, and he even brought up today, he's like, I was not saying this last year. Like, this is a very different, you know, thought process for me and how I think about this team. Um, and I think that's huge. I mean, if you look at the guys they've brought in, especially on the defensive side of the ball, it's just a lot of guys who have played like a, just a shit ton of snaps at a ton of different places. And when you have guys like that, when they're older, that are just looking for a different opportunity, whether that's like to try to make the league or play at the highest level, you know, they're just not going to care as much about like the fluff. Whereas like when you bring in the younger guys who are like almost not even pro eligible yet, you've seen where they've kind of had like some issues with those guys. I mean, Chris Marshall obviously is on the top of the list there um, that like they just don't have the same mindset. Like it's not there's not the uh, sense of urgency for those guys to be really successful. And, you know, he mentioned this on the uh, SEC network that like, you know, these guys are kind of mercenaries and like they don't really care about Ole Miss. And yeah, he's probably not wrong. It's probably a kind of a weird thing to say out loud. Yeah. Um, they don't, the, the players that are coming in for their one year and then getting on the league after the, from the transfer portal, they don't have to be, you know, super ingrained in the Grove and the history of Ole Miss, but they have to be ingrained into the team that they're on now. And that's like the most important thing uh, for this staff and for the fans, for everything is like that they care about this team. Um, now, this is obviously an August statement, <laughs> you know, we'll, we'll see how all the, uh, you know, all the Kumbaya does after Alabama and LSU and Arkansas and Auburn. 
Uh, but it's definitely a positive to have it be noted multiple times from him in public. Whereas, like I said, last year, didn't really hear a lot of this in the beginning. If anything, you heard like real concerns about it from him, which also, like we say, face value turned out to be pretty true. Yeah. And then on top of that, he talked about the depth piece of it. And I think I, I have a piece of his quote here that stuck out to me was, yeah, I, I think he got asked if he thinks this team is deeper than I can't remember if he got asked if it's any other team that he's been at Ole Miss or last year's, whatever the case may be. He said, yeah, I think we have better backups than we have at any time since I've been at Ole Miss. And I think the last podcast we did, we went through for, you know, not tediously, but basically went through each position on the depth chart and was like particularly on the defensive side it was kind of like man this is one returning starter and a lot of transfers and then you know some concerns at linebacker but he he seemed genuinely more confident in the too deep for the lack of a better phrase which we didn't get today at the monday press conference just him being more confident in the guys that they have playing behind the starters and i think well, again, I don't think they'd set themselves up for failure and just say that if they didn't believe it. Because, again, as we keep going back to, he didn't say things like that last year. And the fact that he seems to genuinely believe that, I would have, have to imagine is good news for Ole Miss when you play Alabama and LSU before the calendar turns to October and the injuries really, really start piling up. I was surprised by that, given the amount of unknown on this team, how confident he feels in the guys behind the starters. Right. I mean, it's it's understandable to be concerned looking from our end at seeing all the guys that we've never seen play in an Ole Miss uniform and just assuming that they're going to be successful. But they have the ability, of course, and obviously to see these guys day in, day out of practice and, you know, have confidence in them. And you know, they're putting together the two deep, three deep and be like, you know what? This guy is, you know, not starting and he's been like a hell of a player in practice just because he's behind somebody and we might not even know who he is. I mean, it could be that Liberty transfer. I can't even think of his name or, you know, the ghost of Jalen Knox. They're like, you know, we actually really like this guy. Um, we have seen in the past that these guys have come in and they've been, you know, hyped up to be certain players and they aren't. But I think he never mentioned those and mentioned the depth ever with those guys. So it was kind of like, a, yeah, they already knew what they had with that situation. Um, so, no, it's it's only a positive to hear from it. Uh, I think that defensively is probably what he's talking about most because it's what he's mentioned in almost every press conference is, you know, their concerns with getting the, you know, all of the scheme down, all the players up to speed, especially guys that have even come in this fall on figuring out what they need to do. So, I mean, it, it's got to be a good thing to hear for Ole Miss fans. Yeah, and again, it's just like it's so much unknown from our point of view, but clearly the guys that have watched the coaching staff have watched them practice and watched them go through camp for a month that they feel better about it, despite not us on the outside not knowing what these guys are and what they bring to the table. I, I would take that as probably kind of the top positive piece of news entering game week. For Ole Miss. Another just kind of sidebar that I had that made me laugh a little bit too about Kiffman is like, again, Neil McCready does a good job of asking questions that's going to, uh, I would say, stimulate Kiffin and produce a pretty good answer. And he got asked about the quarterbacks and he was like, we're not ready to make a decision. We like all the guys then immediately started talking about the two guys, which he didn't say by name. But of course, he was talking about Darden Sanders and really just gave a non-answer. And then uh, Neil asked him about like the rule changes and he gave a very detailed answer about like what he thought about it. And then like later on in the press conference, he got asked about like Jam Griffin's acclamation. He goes, you know, he's been good. And he's also been good on special teams, which I don't think it was a shot at Jam Griffin, but it was like, if you're asking about a new player who you think is going to contribute immediately to some degree, you wouldn't want to hear if you were the player, 
you know, he's done some awesome things on special teams as well. And just like the juxtaposition of the questions that Kiffin cares to answer versus the ones that he don't is hilarious to me because he just said, you know, great culture guy. I got asked about John Saunders, uh, great student of the game, great culture guy, just stuff he won't answer versus stuff he, that actually interests him was hilarious to me because it went from very detailed to spin the wheel of cliches back to very detailed to just spin the wheel of cliches. I know that's been a theme throughout his entire time, but it was very evident on Monday and it just made me laugh a little bit because you can tell what he likes to answer and what he doesn't. Yeah. I mean, we've known this for, for a while with him is when he gets a question he doesn't care about, he gives you an answer that you're not going to care about. Um, He's so, a master I mean, at that. It, it's honestly impressive. And it's honestly more impressive that, you know, some people haven't picked up on it yet. Like, <laughs> it's unbelievable. He is. He is just not going to be interested in those kinds of things. Um, but, I mean, I guess it's not necessarily a negative that Cam Griffin is showing up on special teams because, oddly enough, it's not something we ever talk about. They haven't really been that good on special teams except for kicking field goals, um, and they don't they don't really do anything like that that much anyway, so who really cares? Um, but, yeah, I mean, that's just what you get with him. It's, it's nothing new. Um, even in a press conference the week before the first game, he just does not care about talking about the players unless it's like a quarterback in a big picture kind of sense. So it's nothing to be uh, confused by. Your guy, Cedric Johnson, wins the Chucky Mullins Award. I didn't really – I honestly, the way since they changed it from like spring to right before the season, like I don't really think about oh, who's going to be the Chucky Mullins guy this year as much as I did. But I can't imagine that came as much to a shock to you. You've talked a couple of years now about how much you like the kid, how good of a football player he is, what a good family he comes from, and what a good kid he is as well. When you heard that news, did it surprise you at all? Not even a little bit, no. I mean, they, they brought him over to media days. He's been there for a really long time. He's part of like the 19 class, I think. Yeah. Yeah, 19 class, uh, 19 or 20 class. Because he was a true freshman or something in 19, and then I don't think they thought he'd play in 20. But remember, he was one of those guys where Kiffin was like, who the hell is this kid? I don't know much about him, but he has to play. I actually think he was a true freshman in, in 20 because that's, yeah, that's I'm still true. on staff and we were going through practice, and he was like, who the hell is this kid and why is he not playing more? And Durkin was like, okay, we'll, we'll get him out there a little bit. <laughs> um. So, no, that's awesome for him. I saw he's wearing the patch instead of the number. I think that's totally fine. Um, I mean, LSU, Will Campbell was wearing number seven this year, and he obviously cannot do that because he is an offensive lineman. Um, it, it's not a big deal. It's an honor. I think it's a great guy to represent Ole Miss. It's a really cool award um, that, honestly, I don't know if Kiffin fully understood his first year here, what that meant. Um, but you've seen with the guys that he's picked so far in these past few years that like he's like he's kind of learned and gotten educated on what that means to the fan base, to the kid, to the family, and of course, like the Mullins and everybody involved with that. Um, so no, it's awesome for him. He's a great kid. I hope he stays healthy because I think he can have a really good year. Um, I've always been a huge fan of him. I think he's like got a chance to like be a real NFL player. Uh, so that's great. No, it's awesome for him. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I think he's kind of learned as he's gone about like the significance of that. And honestly, if you're talking about bringing people back to the program, which the athletic department the last couple of years has done a much better job of doing Javon Patterson, a couple of those guys in the athletic department are doing a hell of a lot better job of doing that. And like, that's a guy you would want back around. And, you know, for the lack of a better phrase, 
um, you know, those guys will come back around. I believe there's a Chucky Mullins kind of like club where they do a lunch or a banquet or something like that. The only reason I really know that is the woman I actually replaced in my current position is John Youngblood's wife, who is oh, the wow. uh, Chucky Mullins guy. And he's still very involved in the whole Chucky Mullins thing and what it brings. And so having a guy like that come back and just be connected to the program in some way is certainly a positive and Kurt obviously he's going to make a pretty big impact on the field for Ole Miss, but it's just funny hearing you talk about him for the last couple of years. And then this coming to fruition was just kind of like a full circle moment for the pod here, because that's a guy you've had your eye on from 2019 really since you left the industry on. No, absolutely. I called my shot on him and I wasn't the only one. I mean, he was kind of like a diamond in the rough and we told the story. His brother was a six, six quarterback you know, who was at South Alabama that ended up at Southeastern. And we were just like, yeah, this kid's going to grow. He's going to get better. He's just got a great family. Great. He was a great workout individually. And uh, we were lucky that, you know, he was kind of playing the wrong position in high school and that we kind of had a little in with him. And I think, he, I mean, he had a hell of a sophomore year in 2021. I mean, he was like absolutely wreaking havoc with one-on-one matchups. On the other side of Sam Williams, especially that LSU game, if you go back and watch, I mean, he was all over the place. Um, and it really sucked to see him, like, kind of have to fight through injury just to get on the field to help that defense last year. And I'm really, really hoping for a special year for him because he's a great kid and he's a very, very well-deserved recipient of that award. Another question that he got asked that stuck out to me today was he got asked kind of the same chemistry and culture thing that Kiffin did. And he mentioned that, you know, we've taken it upon ourselves as players to try to aid with that. We know we have a bunch of new faces. We hang out with each other, go to people's houses, grow out. I think he mentioned we did golf carts together. I'm assuming he meant go-karts, which uh, I don't know, teaching Ole Miss players how to speed, probably not great with the trend of college football. I'm mostly <laughs> joking there, but stuff like that and them taking it upon themselves to kind of get to know each other and hang out with each other. I know that sounds like a cliche type of thing and football players and football teams are kind of, you know, tightly knit by p- position group. But it was something that was just interesting to me because it the self-awareness that they realized they have a lot of new faces and them getting to know and coexist with one each other, it being important and taking it upon themselves to aid in that process. That shows me some self-awareness and the fact that if a guy like that who's a leader on the team saying that, like clearly they seem to like each other for the most part, at least through fall camp. Well, yeah. I mean, I think you'd hope that after last year with the way the season ended and Great seeing like some, some culture issues that you'd have your leaders step up and be like, okay, like this has to be a real point of emphasis going into this season. If we want to be as successful as we can possibly be, um, especially, you know, the coaching staff has said it for a year now that how important it is and how they need to work on it and get better at it. Uh, and then hearing kids like, you know, take that into some sort of action is exactly what you want from your leaders on the team. Um, so I'm not like overly surprised by it, but I'm glad they're mentioning it and hearing it, that it's like a huge point of emphasis going into this year, especially from what Kippen said. And then obviously kind of the weird last few weeks of the last season. And it was kind of a young team last year. I was talking to someone recently and someone mentioned, like I, we were talking about like Caden Prescorn getting named to the leadership council and he hadn't been there that long, but he's clearly an older kid. That was one of the things last year. They were really mostly a young team. I know they had some veteran pieces scattered across the board, but someone was like, who was the Caden Prescorn or who was the Cedric Johnson last year? Like if you're like, who's the undisputed leader of each side of the football, I'm not sure you could have answered that question where you'd probably have a couple more and more obvious candidates this year, whether it's Jackson Dart 
or one of the veteran offensive linemen, a Cedric Johnson, something like that. It seems like the answers, or at least the candidates for that role, that's a little bit of kind of intangible, like harder to tangibly describe. There seems to be more obvious candidates this year, and they seem to be a little bit more of a veteran football team, despite all the new faces. No, of course. I mean, not all these kids come to college immediately ready to be like a vocal alpha dog leader you know, right off the back or even right after two years. But, you know, once they grow into themselves, once they like find success on the football team and whether it's leading by, you know, voice or leading by example, like they always come out of the woodworks eventually. Um, And it's something they were definitely lacking last year to nobody's fault necessarily. You can't fake it. You either are or you aren't. Um, And it's really good to see that the guys who are the guys we thought that could be have like started that this year, even if some of them are the transfers. Yeah, and it's a good point you make on the end of it. I mean, you've been around these situations and been around plenty of teams. If a guy does it who isn't that guy and it's clear it's not legitimate, it works to a detriment. It's not like a good thing, someone stepping in. It's not a good thing. It is not a good thing at all because if you have guys like that that the fans think are actual leaders because they're just vocal and loud or on Twitter and they're actually not and things go haywire, you blame the guys who are not at fault instead of (laughs) the guy who may be leading by unexample. I don't even think that's a word. I'm going to use it. But it's a good way to say it the it's same a good ex- yeah it's what the point i'm trying to get across and believe me since i've been there there were guys like that and i'm sure you could even think of some of them off the top of your head so no it's it has to be legitimate he got asked uh cedric johnson got asked another question apparently there's a simulator in the manning center now that can like like golf simulator like no no, no. <laughs> that would be awesome maybe it includes a golf simulator there's apparently a simulator in the manning center where you can like look at defensive fronts and kind of look at like how other teams line up against you and vice versa i thought that whether this is true or not some reporter asked the question and i can't remember who it was i can't remember if it was said johnson or i was going back and looking at the uh stefan wins presser i can't remember which one it was but someone was like have you looked at that have you was that is that all and utilized it i can't talk today and the guy whoever it was basically said man there's a lot of new stuff in this building i haven't seen yet there's no way they're getting real value out of like a defensive front simulator that's just hanging out on in the IPF, right? I mean, I just can't imagine that uh, the coaches are bringing them in there and like sitting them down, like with an Oculus on, like trying to look at what Alabama's odd or even fronts look like. Uh, but I could be completely wrong on that. Maybe it's like this secret AI technology that we, you know, they're not telling us for a reason, but I couldn't even explain to you like what that would even look like. Unless I, like I, it was no, wild to think about, but maybe that becomes the new analytics. Is well, AI told us to do this at the simulator on Tuesday, and that'll be stuff we're talking about at a press conference later on. Last one today was Quinchon Judkins. He did uh, clearly they're making him more as now he's not a freshman, making him more available to the media. Naturally, he's one of the stars of the team. He got asked a question about like tape on him going into year two. I kind of dismissed it. I don't know if I call it a bad question, but like I don't know if it has any merit. Is there any merit to having tape on a running back a year in or two years in? Like how much, like how much, how many tendencies do running backs have? Like, do you, do you put any stock into that at all? I mean, not really, I guess, unless like they see him as like a weak pass blocker that, you know, they might put some heavy blitzes on his side. Um, But in terms of running style, I mean, he's so unique and has such incredible balance and vision. It's like, you can't fill every gap. So you don't really care like what his tendency is. I don't know if he's running power or ISO or if he's out wide, you know, I don't really put too much stock into that. Um, But he's a pretty bright kid. I think he knows that teams are going to be much more prepared for the kind of player that he is. 
Um, even if that's just mentally being like, hey, like this is not this guy's a dude. Like we are going to have to absolutely work to stop him. He's going to be a Leonard Fournette, a Derrick Henry, you know, one of these guys where like people are absolutely keying on where he is in the field. So from that standpoint of like having more eyeballs on him and more focus, I can understand, but like his actual, you know, running tendencies uh, and instincts, like there's nothing you can do about that. Cole Kublik, I think it was, had a pretty interesting clip series that he put of Quinshawn Judkins on Twitter. I saw this on Twitter. I saw this. Where he talked about like how like it's it's not like exactly like a um oh who was the dude with the Steelers? Um Le'Veon I, Bell or he would Le'Veon like, Bell. He just walk up the line and just absolutely smash through the open hole. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And clearly Quinshawn doesn't do it exactly the same way as Bell does at all. But one of the things that I took away from watching that on Twitter or X or whatever it's called these days was the fact that Quinshawn will go into the hole, get like wherever kind of like the key block is, he'll get real close to him. And if there's someone trying to tackle him, obviously they're basically just having to be ring around the Rosie around whatever like front matchup this is. And Judkins are just teleport the other way half the time. We talked about what a great running back he is, but someone that understands kind of the film and the nuances side of it better than I do. I thought that was a very articulate description of what makes him so difficult is he'll just get right up on a blocker and then just teleport the right way. And that guy's screwed and making people miss. I thought that was a very interesting way to break down Quinchon's running style. Yeah, running back, the running back position, the way that these coaches call the run game these days is just so much more intricate than I think it used to be. Uh, I remember when Kevin Smith was working with Snoop and Ely, like one of his biggest things coming out of the shotgun was like, once you get the handoff, like you absolutely do not just sprint up to the line and smack the offensive lineman in the back and like just hope to get four yards. Like you have to be patient, especially with an outside outside zone play to like let the holes open up and that's like something that you absolutely can teach but the guys who have it and have the explosiveness to kind of take those few steps and stride and then see where it is and hit it are going to be incredibly incredibly successful and then those two clips of the a&m game and i think it was another game where like you couldn't even see judkins he was, yeah, it was like, like kentucky i think it was yeah. where it's like yeah he disappears and then boom no one touches him Exactly. You're getting to the second level without even worrying about a linebacker because you're so patient in the back end. Um, I mean, it's an incredibly difficult thing to do and you have to have the athletic ability and the burst to do it. Um, And that's what made Bell so unique is that, well, one, he had like an absolutely elite offensive line just mauling people and he could just walk in and pick his hole um, like with DeCastro and those guys at Villanueva. I mean, those were those are some freaks. You don't really have those guys in college necessarily, at least at Ole Miss. You know, not every year do they have those kinds of guys. So, you, yeah, you have to make your own holes. You have to, you know, have the elite vision that Judkins has and, the, you know, the change of direction to be able to actually put that to your benefit. So it's definitely – that's not nothing, and Cole Kubik's really good at what he does. So pointing that out was definitely not a coincidence. Um, and it's, you know, it's massively important for a running back. Well, one of the last encompassing thoughts we'll get kind of on Ole Miss as a team as we do this podcast for the last time before they actually play a game that counts is just giving like taking into account that the coaching staff seemingly feels better about the two deep and more guys that they have capable of, you know, playing behind the starters and just the all encompassing thoughts the coaching staff has on this team before we see it it's clearly an incredibly difficult schedule right we talked about it it's you go to Alabama you get LSU at home you go to Georgia 
How I don't know how to prognosticate this team. You could tell me seven wins. You could tell me nine. I guess I could be talked into ten. Again, I just have to see it first. But would it totally stun you if Ole Miss is in the game at Alabama and or in the game against Georgia? And it feels like with this whole roster building thing we talked about a ton that seemingly, depending on when the game is in the year and the injury situation, that they're actually building toward having the horses on a given Saturday to compete with you know two of the five elite programs in the country. Yeah, I mean, I don't know where I land on this team yet. and what I can't I figure it out at all. Yeah, I cannot figure it out at all. And I think a lot of it has to do with just the the scrum that's in the middle of the SEC West. It's like, what are those guys going to be like? It's impossible to prognosticate you know, what Ole Miss is if you have absolutely no idea what the you know teams with massive variables like State and Arkansas, Auburn, A&M. I mean, it's, it's impossible. Um, I think that the big three games, the Alabama, LSU, and Georgia, I, it, it's all on dart. And I know that's not fair to put it on him, but it is the most important position uh, in sports. And for this team and for the way Kiffin does things, like if you're going to beat elite football teams, you're going to have to get really good play out of dart. Um, I'm, I would not be surprised if they won one of those games. Um, I don't know if I would predict it necessarily just because I think they're on very different parts of the schedule and very weird, you know, timing with having Georgia so late after kind of like a, a run of odd, you know, toss up games and then just off the back getting Alabama and LSU. Um, I'm obviously as every season comes up, you begin to get more and more excited and more positive feeling about this team. And I'm not saying to like temper those expectations because that's not what we do. We don't care. We don't cover the team. We're not you know involved with it anymore. We hope they win every game. And um, I'd land on eight and four ish um, to be honest, before seeing all the positive vibes coming out of fall camp, I would have been closer to seven and five. Um, but the, the issue is like, I just don't know who they beat and I don't know how it looks. Cause that can look very different. I mean, an eight and four last year was like, I would say a failure, but the way it happened towards the end eight and four this year, where you lose to Alabama, LSU, Georgia, and call it A&M. I mean, that would definitely stink because those are the teams you, if you want to compete in this league, you have to beat. But if you win all those toss up games going into next year and, you know, you beat States or whatever, uh, I mean, towards the end and you've got momentum and recruiting and maybe you win a bowl game, then it's like, okay, 2024 is here. We've got these guys are a year older and it's a 12 team playoff and we're good. Um, but Kevin's making $9 million a year. I don't think that's going to be enough anymore. Um, so I, I don't know personally, I was thinking about it. I'm, I'm going to go with eight and four. I think they beat A&M and I think they lose on the road at Auburn. Um, which I'm sure will be a super fun Sunday podcast for everybody <laughs> involved. Um, but it, I mean, if you asked me and told me that they were five and one going into Auburn, like I wouldn't be surprised they knocked off Bama on the road. Uh, I'm not super high on them. Um, if you told me they were six and oh, I'd say bullshit. But at the end of the day, I mean, I think they had the talent. Clearly, they seem to think they have more depth than they usually do. So you never know. But uh, it's going to be pretty difficult on Sunday or Monday, whenever we do our podcast after Mercer, to like give you any more thoughts on that. <laughs> yeah, it'll be week three before we're able to expound on that more. And this is not going to please the handful of people that tell us we agree too much. But I think that's exactly where I land, given what the coaching staff seems to think of this team from a depth and an overall roster standpoint. I think I've probably gotten to that eight and four mark versus seven and five. Um, they just based on what they said and like that leaves room for error of like, Hey, maybe they win one of those mark 
marquee three games, but they catch Auburn when they're really beaten up and lose one that you maybe think they should win type of thing. And eight and four, like you said, last year versus this coming year is different because you get eight and four this year with this schedule. It's kind of like, okay, some, you know, seemingly right now, as we sit here in August, momentum on the high school recruiting front and doing better in that regard, who knows what you bring back at quarterback, but you, you would feel pretty good depending on how it looked going into next season with the expanded college football playoff. Whereas last year, the schedule was set up for them to go 10 and two again, and maybe flirt with the college football playoff, despite maybe not even being as good of a team as maybe the 2023 team could be as weird as that sounds. And then the last part you said that I think was well said is it does fall on Jackson Dart because even if you have the pieces and you catch Alabama early in the year and you do have the two deep and the depth to compete with them, you win games like that, particularly on the road because of how your quarterback plays and can he will you to a win and can he be better than the other side, the guy on the other side of the field at the same position to win games like that. I think that is ultimately what it comes down to. And honestly, Dart with his second year in the program and his third year in college football, that is what you should expect. You reach your team ceiling based on how a guy like that, who's not inexperienced anymore, how he plays. And so I, I think that's a perfect way to encapsulate it. I, I, I kind of met that eight and four mark too. Again, it'll look a lot different than last year, but I think if it's the eight and four, nine and three range versus the seven and five ish range, it's probably dependent on what their quarterback does. Namely right now, Jackson Dart. Well, and it, it's, you know, I, it's honestly unfair to put it all in dark because it's honestly, it's on Lane and Charlie too. Yeah. I mean, this team was a bad second half football team last year. Um, even early on, they were a bad second half football team. Once they got off script, it did not look the same. I don't necessarily even know if they put Dart in the best positions he could be in. I mean, you just look at all the games, whether it was freaking Tulsa last year or the Alabama second half or the LSU second half. Uh, I mean, even the Kentucky second half, like, they could have run that team out of the building and they just kept them in it, you know, longer than they absolutely should have. Um, so it'll be very interesting. They will definitely be fun. Um, it may not be the fun for the Ole Miss fans. It could be fun for everyone else, or it could be really fun for everybody. Um, they will not be uninteresting. That's for sure. And I mean, it'll be fascinating to see like how it all stacks out. I mean, I do not think this team is going to flop. Um, I do not think this team is going to win the SEC West. And I think if it's anywhere in the middle, it'll very much be dependent on how it looks more than like the actual record. Let's take a look around week one before we get you back on Sunday. We've got a handful of pretty marquee games. We start out with Florida, Utah on Thursday night at 7 p.m. This game was a lot more exciting like three months ago than it is now because it doesn't sound like Cam Rising is going to play. We, uh, I can't remember if it was you or Borky we were talking about on the uh, podcast where like Utah's backup apparently is in trouble. Like Cam Rising got hurt. And then our guy, Kyle Whittingham, apparently thought it'd be a good idea to just let his second string quarterback get hit in a scrimmage. He gets hurt. So they could be playing with a third string quarterback. The game is at Utah. For a guy that's one of our favorites on this podcast, Kyle Whittingham stands clearly. That seemed like a weird move. But with the way the line has gone, I think it's gone from like 11 to four or somewhere real, real jumpy in terms of like the amount of points it's jumped. It doesn't sound like Cam Rising's playing. And it seems like kind of it's all in Florida's court if they want to get a bit of a marquee win early in the year on the road to take it, If particularly if Cam Rising is not playing for uh, Utah. Yeah, this is a Kyle Whittingham fan podcast that we haven't, you know, been nice enough to Kyle over the years. Um I don't know what's going on with that game. So I actually thought I saw today that rising, like maybe playing and the line went back up from four to like six and a half or seven. 
And he tells you nothing. He did this last year all the way up until kickoff on a couple games where he will not tell you who can't play and who no. will I mean, do you, you remember the Thursday night game? They were playing like Oregon State and like yeah. everything shows up the stadium and like is just in shorts and everyone's like, what the fuck? And <laughs> hey, what's going on here? Complaining that he was shaving points and that he had money. I mean, it was a whole ordeal. I mean, it was a real thing. So you know, he is definitely on the Lane Kiffin side of I will tell you nothing. Um I mean, I think it's a really big game for Billy Napier. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but their team total for the season wins is five and a half. Juice wow. to the that's year two to, Napier too. Juice to the under um, a little bit. And look, I mean, I say it every time. Like I'm a big believer in Napier. I think that he should not be fired no matter how it goes. Their schedule this year is a fucking dogfight. I mean, it is unbelievable their schedule. Um, but if they had the opportunity to knock off Utah, I mean, they did it last year to a really good Utah team. Uh, that would be a huge boost for Florida. Um, I would just not even touch that game, not knowing the quarterback situation. That would just be crazy. And it sounds like we're not going to know that uh, because whatever stupid college football rules we have, we will not know that until you know kickoff, whether he's playing or not. Uh, so I'm staying far away from that one. Does Colorado TCU tickle your fancy at all? Um, the 21 points does that I think TCU is going to beat them by. I, I think Colorado is okay. going to be – Terrible. I think Are you with the unbeliever because I tend to think it's a little more smoke and mirrors than anything else. Because I mean, he brought his Jackson State quarterback, his son. I get it. Kid may be an awesome player, but when you just declare when you take the job, we're already set at quarterback. I'm kind of like, oh, that's not really how most people do it. I'm not anti Dion um, at all. I, I'm anti FanDuel and DraftKings and ESPN, like consistently hyping up his son and Hunter and showing all these Heisman odds and basically like extorting people for their money, thinking these guys have a chance to be any good when I think they're going to be absolutely terrible. Um, that doesn't mean they're going to be terrible forever. Uh, that doesn't mean I don't believe in Dion, but I, I mean, I'm willing to like, hire a lawyer for the class action suit for people that are betting on Shador Sanders to win the Heisman at plus a hundred thousand or a hundred thousand to one. I mean, it's a fucking joke that like, I mean, it's honestly sick, like what they're doing online, whether it's Fox sports or everybody hyping up these teams for people to like throw away their money on. Um, I think it's ridiculous. Um, And then on the flip side, I actually don't think TCU is going to be as bad as some people think they are. I know they lost a lot, but people forget that Chandler Morris, though he's the son of a very unsuccessful Arkansas coach, was, was the actually starter. the starter going into last year. So I think they have a lot of confidence in them. They're a, uh, they're, I mean, they're a really good program. It's honestly incredible, like the entire athletic department, what they've been able to do over the past few years. So it's definitely a lot more uh, pro TCU than anti the future of Colorado. We got North Carolina, South Carolina at some point this weekend. I think that game's on a Saturday. North Carolina's, I think, favored by two and a half. They're ranked. South Carolina's not. South Carolina, a lot of momentum at the end of la- uh, toward the end of last year with the way they played. The beginning of their schedule is nuts. Let me just read this off to you real quick. They played North Carolina. I don't think that's a home game. I want to say that's neutral. It's side. in no. Charlotte. It's at okay. the Panthers Stadium. Yeah. That, so then they get firm in between that. Then it's at Georgia, at home against State, at Tennessee and home against Florida before at Missouri and at AM. And I know I just went through two months of games, but I mean, my God, you could look at a South Carolina team that's not that terrible. That's like one or two and five. I say one and five. They'll beat Furman two and five or something. And it's like, actually, they're not that bad. 
They better win this one is my point because then after these that one in Furman, it's at Georgia, stayed at home at Tennessee and Florida. If you want to talk about a juicy September game where two teams really, really need that win, it's that Mississippi State game September 23rd. That's going to be fascinating. Yeah, that's a unique matchup. We don't get State-South Carolina very much. I can't even think off the top of my head the last time those teams played. That's kind of like a Ole Miss-Georgia. Like you just don't see it very often. Do you I don't know? think Ole Miss has played at South Carolina since 2009. Was that the Jevin Sneed when they were like number four in the country and yeah, lost? Yeah, second year Sneed. I don't think they played at South Carolina since, which is a joke, but they did, to your point, similar vein here. Yeah, because I know they played South Carolina at, at home twice while I worked there. One was the Debo Samuel, like, absolute slugfest where he just absolutely went off. And then the next COVID. time, the COVID year when Elijah Moore, the, you know, clipboard toss. Uh, that, but that's just insane. And hopefully we'll get rid of that whenever they redo all the schedules and stuff because that's crazy. Um, I, I lean South Carolina in that matchup. I know Drake May is awesome, um, which he is awesome, but – that North Carolina team is like total smoke and mirrors. They are absolutely atrocious on defense. And South Carolina, I mean, Beamer in recruiting, I mean, they've got a guy that you will definitely be hearing his name on Saturday, Nicholas Harbor, who is like one of the biggest freaks of all freaks that has come in the league in like a long time. Um, and he's like a receiver, just do it all kind of guy who ran like a 10 2 5, like a world champion hurdle or sprinter. And he's like 6'5, 230. Like, and just a, a one-of-one one kind of guy. And I think they found something at the end of last year. I know they have a new offensive coordinator, which changes things a little bit. Um, but I'm much more bullish on that South Carolina team and the athletes they have. I, I think North Carolina, if Drake May isn't like God out there, I don't see them winning that game. Last one of the weekend that's really even marquee at all, LSU, Florida State. This game was interesting because you thought both teams might be bad last year. Now you got two top eight teams this the return trip of the neutral sites, which just play this on campus, please. Cool. Superdome's cool. I'm not going to call that Camping World Stadium cool. Been there, didn't find no, it you cool. Not. But let's yeah. just let's just play this on campus. Be that as my small complaint aside, it's five number five LSU, number eight Florida State. I tend to favor LSU in this one. I think I did going into the game last year because I wasn't sure Florida State could block LSU, and then LSU was just abhorrent offensively for three and a half quarters of that game. But what do you make of the rematch this year? This is a huge marquee game for Florida State, and this is kind of a start of a little bit of a validation tour for Brian Kelly and LSU. This is awesome TV for week one. This will be a great game. This is the Sunday night game that Ole Miss has been a part of before. I think they should do this Sunday night marquee game while the NFL is out every single year possible. Um, they should never play any opening games in Orlando ever because it sucks. And everyone who's ever been there says that stadium sucks. It blows. It's terrible it's, to get to. I hated everything about it. Yeah, it's it's terrible. Um, I mean, it'd be how much cooler would it be if it was that dope? I'm, I'm totally with you. All my friends are like, we're not going to Orlando. Like, why would we care about that? But if they were in Tallahassee, everyone would be there. Um, I kind of lean Florida State in this game, actually. Okay. Um, maybe I'm buying the hype, but I think just individual talent, some of the guys that Florida State have on both sides of the ball, including a quarterback they're incredibly confident in, uh, I think they're going to be really good. They're like almost mirror images of each other in the way the seasons uh, kind of turned up last year where like they started off really slow, both teams, and they both like absolutely riled it up. 
towards the end of the season. And now they're coming in, having seen each other last year. There are some new faces in this game, but honestly, I mean, the quarterbacks are the same, the coaches are the same, the coordinators are the same. Like they're going to know a lot about each other. I think it's going to be an awesome football game. Uh, I think I trust the Florida State offense a little bit more than I trust the LSU defense, um, which is saying something pretty crazy because the front seven of LSU is really good. They will not have Mason Smith in that game because the NCAA just decided. We got the old improper benefits. What a blast from the past. Uh, No, they decided they're going to care about the rules again. So they will not have uh, their best defensive lineman for that game, which will definitely, I mean, it's not nothing. Um, And the LSU DBs are incredibly unproven, um, which is something you just don't hear very, very often. Um, And Florida State is a really good quarterback with two really good receivers on the outside that I think could present some pretty unique matchup issues. So, Florida State's, I think they're plus two. I love taking underdogs under three points because everyone always just assumes to take the favorite. Um, it'll be a 75-25 crowd, which is, again, not nothing. Um, so, I mean, it's a toss-up. It's going to be an awesome game between two really good teams, two really good coaches. Um, but, yeah, I lean the Knowles. Last thing, that kind of wraps up the week one going through the games. But one thing that I meant to get to you with uh, Ole Miss related before we get to the fastest growing segment on American soil, we haven't really had you on since Ole Miss has had the surge of commitments recruiting wise. They get Cam Franklin, um, they get White, they added a quarterback commit. There seems to be some real real momentum in the high school ranks. And whether this is a correction back toward maybe less portal heavy or just maybe they were biding time until they got some footholds. What do you make of this? Because they have real high school recruiting momentum really for the first time in the Kiffin era and seem to be doing a much better job in emphasizing it a lot more. I know that was a complete 180 pivot, but it just made me think of a question I missed. No, that's totally fine. Um, You know, I've been thinking about the way they've done this whole thing since they've gotten there. And it almost makes me think like they were just, kind of addicted to the portal, you know, by happenstance and by need. And they're slowly but surely waning themselves off the addiction and getting to where they would like to be, you know, making this roster happen where it's not necessarily all high school, but if you're going percentages, we're going like 70 high school, 30 portal, or even 80 high school, 20 portal. And I think a lot of it has to do with Pete Golding. I mean, I told you when you got here that this guy is absolutely different. He's the only guy that goes into Louisiana anymore and takes guys that they want. Uh, He recruited Mississippi like really, really hard while I was there and got a lot of really good players out of there. Having him kind of come in and not be the figurehead, but be like the lead general in recruiting is absolutely massive. And he does it the way that old school guys do it. It's all effort. Effort is 90% of recruiting then it's 5% selling and probably, you know, maybe probably a little bit more NIL than 5%. But at the end of the day, like if you're not in the game, you can't even have the conversation about NIL. So getting Cam Franklin, you know, there's no excuses letting a guy 45 minutes away leave, Um, but it doesn't always happen. Believe me, I saw the N'Kobe Dean situation up close and personal. So it's a huge win. It's a huge win on the defensive side of the ball. Um, and I know they got Nora White, who I actually really like. Um, he can play both sides of the ball. And then I actually don't really know a whole lot about the quarterback. I know he was kind of a late bloomer, elite 11 guy. But, I mean, just being able to pick him up after losing another four-star guy, like nothing happened, is, is pretty damn impressive. 
Um, so it's it's really encouraging. I think they're going to have a pretty good finish, and it's all about momentum. If they play really good football this year, I think there's a chance they can get in on guys they probably hadn't thought about in a little bit uh, to complete this class. How much added percentage is the fact that look, Chris Barcher is known as a very good recruiter. He's named National Recruiter of the Year by 247 a couple of times, but none of that was really done in the South. It was a lot of Big Ten stuff, right? He kind of made a name for himself at Michigan. If you think of some of the big high school lands Ole Miss got early on in Kiffin's tenure when Partridge was there, it was Tashi Johnson, um, you know, do, uh, uh, Tywon Malone, guys that yeah. not really from that Southern footprint. And I'm not to suggest that Chris Parcher is incapable of recruiting the South, but Pete Golden comes from Alabama. He's a Louisiana guy, he played his college football in Mississippi, uber familiar with the South. How much value do you put in that piece of it and just how the tide has turned in terms of how Ole Miss has fared with blue chip kids in the South and in Mississippi? No, I mean, it's it's a clear night and day deal. I mean, yeah, Partridge is a very good recruiter, but I mean, well, you're still dealing with, you know, COVID stuff. So like recruiting guys outside of your footprint was obviously more difficult and, right. you know, none of those guys are actually on the roster anymore, um, which was what happens in the transfer portal when you get kids from hundreds of miles away who don't actually care about the South. They just like the coach. You know, it happens everywhere. It's not Ole Miss specific or even Partridge specific. Um, it's never how I thought Ole Miss should recruit. Ole Miss should be inside out for sure. That doesn't mean you have to be Mississippi made and only care about Mississippi. But guess what? There's elite players in the state this year. You have to find a way to get them. Um, they've been incredibly organized with NIL. So if they need it, they can get it to an extent, of course. Um, and then Golding is just as good as it as anybody. You know, he's not afraid to put in all the effort necessary. He has connections with these high school coaches from his time at Alabama. So they're not unfamiliar discussing with him that he's probably recruited some of these guys for a few years at Alabama. So it's not a new face in the room. Um, it's a massive difference. And he's clearly you know lived up to his billing. And it's it's really, really important that you're able to get the elite players that are close to you because that's the only way for Ole Miss to be successful in this day and age in recruiting. I just wanted to make sure I got your thoughts on that before we got out of here because, again, that has been a little bit of a storyline kind of off the field to some degree as far as building for the future. It is now time for the fastest-growing segment on American soil. It is Soccer Corner. We are three matches into the EPL season. Uh, I haven't looked too hard, but it didn't seem like any sackings yet. Hopefully we're close to that. We can't get to the five-game mark without someone getting fired. That would just be horrendous and off-brand. Um, really at the top, it's seemingly gone the way people thought it was. Man City just destroying the competition. I believe they've scored six goals and allowed one. That seems pretty good. That'll get the job done. Uh, a little bit of surprise. Two matches in is it feels silly looking at the standings. But uh, West Ham, two wins yeah. and a draw. Played pretty good. Football, see, catching on with the terminology here. I Very believe nice. they beat Brighton. Uh, did they beat Chelsea? Do I have that correct? Or is that a preseason? They beat match? Chelsea and Brighton so far. Yes. So, surprise early on, three matches in. Give me, we hadn't really talked about West Ham a ton other than that. I know they're a pretty premier club that has not been toward the top of the Premier League in a while, but that's a name that I'd heard even before we started doing this segment. A uh, little bit of surprise at the top. That's a London club, correct? Yeah, it's a London club. It's one of the bigger London clubs. They have a brand new stadium in the last three years. Um, it's a team that I thought was going to be really, really bad this year. I think I even said that I put them out at plus 900 to be relegated, um, which, is oh, far, yeah. which is far from over, by the way. Um, they sold their best player to Arsenal, and I was like, they didn't buy anybody else, and I just think this team's going to be really bad. Uh, since then, they have spent that $100 million on like three or four really good players, um, I still think Chelsea might be terrible, so I'm not giving you too much on that. But then they went and beat Brighton 
And you know how I feel about them. Like they are just incredible. So that was a really, really good victory for them. I don't think this team is competing for top four, uh, but you can't compete if you're not there. So it's it's a definitely, I would say, a surprise based off of their performance last year, uh, how they've started this year. Is Phil Longo manning the Brighton attack? Because they've scored nine goals and allowed five. They're just run and shoot. I mean, this is the Hawaii of the Premier League. That defense optional, we're going to score a bunch of goals. Uh, the Portuguese, that's the Portuguese team, correct? They're just running and gunning. Wolves are the Portuguese. Oh, that's right. It's Wolves. What What does Brighton do that I should care about? They are maybe the best run team in the league. Just okay. in terms, they're like the Rays or, you know, the anti-Yankees. Like they just do with little and they make a lot. Uh, I sent you that graph of like all the guys that were bought for $0, sold for yeah. $70 million. Um, That's them. And they, I mean, that's not changed for them. Uh, they had a... Obviously, I did not get to watch it, but a pretty rough game against West Ham. If not, they'd probably have like nine goals for and like one against. I think they gave up like three or four to them, which is surprising. Uh, they're going to be competing for European football. They're that good. They offensively, um, or at least just attacking wise, I can't, it's not really offensively. They are as like creative and impressive as any team in the league so far. Uh, so I'm not worried about them at all. They're going to be really good. They're just going to be a tough out every week. We have not seen any sort of early uh, Cinderella, hey, we got a statement win and we got in the Premier League. It's been a tough struggle for our friends at Luttontown, uh, Burnley. Uh, I think Sheffield was the other one. They've yet to win a game or a match, excuse me. I think they got to combine like uh, what, a couple goals between the four of them. Everton is just a disaster at the bottom so far. Luttontown delays their home opener to make sure their stadium is up to snuff. Um, is there? This seems like, again, I'll just say it early on, knowing nothing about this sport, but the three teams that came up, you could see two of them going back down, if not all three. It doesn't seem like there's a little bit of the friskiness we had with a couple of the teams last year, like Nottingham, and I think Bournemouth may have been the other one. This seems more like your uh, yo-yo club level of years past. Yeah, I would say so. This is um, it's kind of a weird year in the Premier League, at least so far, where the top like 14 or 15 are, are all pretty good. Obviously, you've got your top six clubs, but I would say the the median is stronger than it was last year. Uh, but the bottom is like very much the bottom this year. I think between Sheffield, Burnley, Luton, and Everton, which is of course we talked about this. Everton is like an incredibly historic club. They would be one, of, maybe one of the worst run clubs in the, in the league right now. Uh, but those four are going to be competing for relegation for sure. And I think. You're going to see some other teams start coming down. Fulham has started off hot. I don't see that lasting. Um, but then teams like Newcastle, who have started off a little slow, I, I see them picking it up. Uh, but the, the four teams are at the bottom right now. They're going to be there for a while. Everton, historic club, you mentioned. I actually looked this up right before we started recording. They were second, two spots out of relegation two years ago. And then the literally one, they escaped relegation by a spot last year this seems like a long time coming historic club is it just disaster wherever the hell Ever everton is it's just it seems like a long time coming they're probably going to go down it's just what happens when you're poorly run i mean with the amount of money in the premier league and the way that the business works if you put yourself in debt by buying bad players and then selling them for you know a negative profit you're just going to get down and down and down and down and that's what they've done for years now um, they're, they're young kids. So they used to, you know, bring up a lot of guys in their academy that were really good players. Wayne Rooney was one of those guys. If you've heard of that name before, um, they just don't have that anymore. They're incredibly poorly run. They're building a new stadium, but like, I don't think that's going as well as they thought it was going to. 
They have not been relegated, I think, in 55 years. I think it's maybe the record amongst all teams currently in the Premier League. Um, I'm not 100% on that. Uh, but, I mean, that's it's a pretty incredible accomplishment. But they are absolutely terrible this year. I'm not get Saudi Castle has had a tough schedule. Again, we're only three matches in, but not seeing them towards the top and being able to prod the Saudi angle would disappoint me. But they no, played, they've had a tough run. Yeah. Manchester City and Liverpool, they're going to be fine, right? They just early, early tough matches. Yeah, they didn't play great against City. Um, so that was like slightly disappointing. And they absolutely choked the Liverpool game away. Uh, obviously, you haven't brought it up, so you didn't see it. They were up one. I watched the first half of it, not the second. Yeah. So they're all, they're at home up one nothing and Van Dyke gets a red card the best you know defender on Liverpool's team and then Newcastle ends up losing the game two one which for a team with that amount of quality at home is like unheard of and uh, Liverpool hit like a ninety three minute ninety third minute game winner um, so that's a pretty damn disappointing result for them um, all things considered especially how difficult their early schedule was to get a result there um, that was not a win was pretty pretty bad but I'm not. I'm not really worried about them necessarily. It's just a pretty tough start to the season. And then lastly, just the pulse on your beloved Manchester United. You were not happy about their 1-0 win against Wolves the last time we did a soccer corner. They followed up. They lose 2-0 to Tottenham. And then they beat Nottingham Forest 3-2, which, again, didn't watch that match, but I can't imagine you were overly thrilled with that. What's kind of the temperature of Man U through three matches? Not great? Not much better. Uh, I woke up in the morning uh, at 8.05. The game started at 8. And I was like, all right, let's 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 turn it on. And Nottingham Forest was up 2-0 within 60 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, you, what you, want to see? you have got to be kidding me that this is what I'm waking up to this morning, uh, hungover as hell. Um, they, you know, actually showed some heart. They're at home. They came back to win 3-2. That's absolutely like an accomplishment. It's nothing to be concerned about. I mean, not you can definitely be concerned about it, but it's it's you can't take anything away from it. Um, but they still just look really discombobulated um, in, in the back, which is not something I was expecting. We bought a new goalkeeper. Um, we've had two like really good defenders that were great last year. Um, a lot of injuries have now come up, um, which is definitely concerning. Considering they have not bought many players in the midfield, and now like we're playing a bunch of guys who are just not as athletic as they need to be. Um, but we have five days left in this transfer window or five or six days left. They're going to have to do some serious business because they've got way too many injuries to be keeping on that they have. Um, and they need to be fit and ready for Champions League, which starts in about a month. And you know they haven't been there in two or three years. So I'm not I'm not happy with how this start of the season has gone, um, but I'm not super disappointed either. I think I want to see the new kid. They bought the new striker from um, – from Denmark is coming in and he's supposed to be a really good player he's injured and how the team fits around him. Cause he was the most important buy they had this year. This has been the fastest growing segment on American soil. It is soccer corner. He is Weldon Rodenberg. Appreciate the time as always, my friend, we're back. We'll talk to you after game one. I can't wait. Can't wait to break down Mercer. Oh yeah. All right. That's going to do it for our show today. Thanks for Weldon's time. Hope you guys enjoyed that. We've got more football content coming to you both Thursday and Friday, a little bonus pod this week. Um, we've also got potentially a former Ole Miss player coming on, and that will probably go Thursday or Friday. So be on the lookout for that. Still trying to get that uh, fully locked down. Thanks for listening to this podcast. As always, hope you're as excited about football season as I am, and we will uh, talk to you tomorrow.